0: I invite you to turn in God's Word with me this morning to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and we'll begin reading there today with verse 18. And uh, we are in the midst of a series on prayer, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, this morning we're going to be talking about praying with the Holy Spirit. So, Romans chapter 8. Beginning with verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly As we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, Pentecost Sunday is one of those high holy days in the life of the church. On Pentecost, we remember the, the sound of the rushing wind blowing through the house of the apostles. And we remember the tongues of fire that rested on each of the disciples that day. We remember Peter's sermon and how about 3,000 of them repented and were baptized on a single day. And as a result, we tend to associate Pentecost with power, right? With the power of the Holy Spirit, with the mighty works of the Spirit, with the growth of the church. And well, we should. All of this is recorded in the book of Acts, how the gospel went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth the book of Acts throughout church history has been dubbed the Acts of the Apostles the Acts of the Apostles but some having read the story of the gospel spread to cover the entire world have said that really we should call this book the Acts of the Holy Spirit there's not a whole lot of difference there but I think the church may have gotten it right in the first place. <clears throat> because one of the things that we have to remember is that the Holy Spirit was a gift for the church. The Holy Spirit is not represented as doing all of these great acts on his own, sort of, sort of parallel to the church. Rather, he is always doing his work in and through the church. The Holy Spirit was given to people like us. Jesus promised his disciples that he would send them a comforter in his absence. The tongues of fire, they rested on believers. Jesus gave the Spirit to his disciples, common men, and transformed them from frightened men into bold witnesses. In other words, the Spirit is always with his church, with us. They go together They can't be broken apart. Yes, He does His work, and He's doing His work in the world, but He's always doing that work through us, His people. And today, we see His attachment to the church in one of the most intimate of ways. The Holy Spirit is with us, even in that most private unpublicized place in our hearts, that place from which we pray. Dan and Melanie, today you made a promise before God that many of us here have made, the promise to teach our children to pray. And sometimes when I read those words, I think, oh, that's kind of an easy one. Those words usually, except this morning, tend to just roll off my lips. Teach your children to pray. But it's not really that easy, is it, for anyone who's actually attempted it? Um, Not just in the fact that children tend to learn more from what we do than what we say, but because prayer, in so many ways, opens up an entire new world for children. It shows them the way that the world really is. And not all of us are ready to go there. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. That's, uh, that's the one my parents started me with. And I think we probably did the same with our kids. But many people object to that prayer. Okay? They object that um, those words actually scare kids. Remember the next line? If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Some people are adamant that you shouldn't pray those words with children so young. You'll just scare them and they don't need to start thinking about death at such an early age. But I always want to counter, well, what, what age is it appropriate to begin to start thinking about death? I mean, do we really think that our children don't know that they don't see it everywhere around them? Don't we want to help our children put death in a biblical context to let them know that nothing, not even death, can separate them from the love of God? Prayer for a child, in many ways, is about coming to see the world as it really is. Not just the content of our prayers, but the very act of prayer itself does that it opens up a whole world for our children tish warren writes this she says prayer itself in any form dares us to interact with a world beyond the material realm a world filled with more mysteries than we can talk about in urbane company see friends our children or our our culture wants us to believe that the world is limited to everything we can see and touch. But any child that's afraid of the dark has doubts, don't they? In the very act of teaching that child to pray, we are telling him or her that she's right. She's right. There is more to this world than what we see. So how do we teach our children To pray then even if it is kind of a scary task if it does open the world up to them in in ways that maybe they aren't ready to hear how do we teach them then to pray I think the answer is this gently lovingly confidently and right there beside them We kneel at the side of their beds and we pray with them. Sometimes we even put our arms around them and pray with them. Often we give them the words. We give them the topics. We remind them of what the Bible says. We pray the words with them and we pray for them and we assure them that there is no safer place for them to be than the place of prayer This is all a part of teaching them to pray. And the Apostle Paul says that the Holy Spirit is very much like our parents. The Holy Spirit helps us in our prayers. The word for helps us here in the Greek is found in only one place in the New Testament. Okay, And that's where Martha... Uses it when she complains to Jesus that her sister Mary is not helping her get the house ready for their guests. It's a word that means to come to the aid of, or more than that, to help someone bear a burden. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He helps us bear a burden. The Holy Spirit doesn't set us to the task of prayer alone. Jesus in the garden was the only one to ever pray alone. He makes sure that when we pray, Jesus makes sure that when we pray, His Holy Spirit is abiding with us, is bearing the burden with us. He's making sure that the Holy Spirit has His arms around us, that He's kneeling beside us, that He is praying with us. Now, why do we need that kind of help? In prayer, I mean, prayer seems fairly simple. Why do we need this kind of help? Why can't we just pray on our own? And the answer is because, Paul says, we are weak. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, okay? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Now, what kind of weakness is it that Paul is referring to here? Well, I think he's referring to the general limitations of our human condition. Okay, there are lots of specific ways that we could say that we are weak, but I think Paul is actually ter- talking or speaking in general terms. The limited human condition that we are in. Let me try and explain that. You may have noticed that there's a lot of groaning going on in this text. If you didn't, you should read through it again sometime today. In verse 22, Paul says that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. This groaning is an expectant kind of groaning, right? The pains of childbirth expect a child. They expect expect something good. They expect joy. Likewise, the creation instinctively knows that God has something better in store for it. Its rivers were meant to babble God's praise, but now they are filled with garbage. Its fields were meant to satisfy little tummies all around the world but so many of those stomachs are bloated with hunger and their parents don't know how to fix it. And so the creation is frustrated. It knows it was meant for something better. It knows it was created to praise God and it expects that sometime it will again. But in this in-between time, the creation is groaning in frustration and groaning in expectation. That's verse 22, okay? In verse 23, we find this very same word describing the church, the people of God, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, we have tasted heaven, you might say, and we too are groaning for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, we have to clarify that a little because we have already been adopted in Jesus Christ as God's children, but the world doesn't know that it doesn't acknowledge us as the children of god and sometimes we ourselves forget that fact we forget that we are indeed the children of god our bodies also have already been redeemed in one sense and yet we know that there is so much more to come and so we groan for our full redemption right we groan for rescue from the messes that others have made and that we ourselves have made we groan for our faith to become sight we groan for that age of no more death or crying or pain when all things will be made new And this is what Paul means by our weakness. We are part of a world that's caught between the already, the already redeemed, and the not yet. It's not yet complete. Jesus has come. He's offered his own life as a sacrifice for our sin. He's given us salvation, but he has not yet made all things new. He's given us a taste of heaven, the first fruits of heaven, the Holy Spirit, but he's not given us heaven itself. And so we share in the frustration of the entire creation. We know things are broken. We experience that brokenness every day. At the same time, we've tasted something good and we know it's coming, but we are still stuck in this place, stuck in our brokenness and longing for more. And it's in this weakened condition that Paul says this, We don't even know what to pray for. We don't even know what to pray for. Have you ever thought of that? We have a reason to pray, don't we? We have a motivation to pray. The groaning of the creation, we groan with it. We can name a million things in this world that are not the way they're supposed to be. And we also, by the revelation of the Spirit, have a pretty good feel for the way things are supposed to be. Right? I mean, starvation is bad. We know that. Full stomachs are better. Violence is bad. We know that. Peace is better. And yet, we don't always know how to get from point A to point B. What steps do we take to get there. What has to happen to get from one to the other? What has to happen in the world? What has to happen in my heart? You see, the world is complex, isn't it, friends? Talk to anyone who's involved with partners worldwide about the complexities that are involved in trying to get people to work and in supplying people with food. It involves governments and economies and rule of law. And then on top of it all, there's the human heart to contend with. The world is complex, but so am I, and so are you as human beings and as sinful human beings. To all those complexities we've just talked about, there are complexities in us. I may want to eradicate the world hunger, or world hunger. I can announce that to the world, but I may not want to change my life in any significant way or even in the smallest of ways to accomplish that goal. We can have all of these wonderful goals, but when it comes down to how I need to change, that's different. And so, where do we even begin to pray? How do we begin to pray? Lord, lead us from point A to point B. Let me offer you a a specific example. I know that many of you have been involved in foster care or foster parenting as as we have in our family as well. Safe families applies to this in many ways too, but but sometimes as a foster parent you take a child into your home, right? And you grow to to love that child and they become a part of your family and you really you want what's best for them. But you don't always know what's best for them. I mean, Should we pray for that child to stay with us? Should we pray for that child to go back to their parents? And depending on the answer to that question, what's my motivation for praying in either one of those directions? Do I really know what's best for the child? Do I really want what's best for the child? Do I really want what's best for the parents of that child? Or deep down, am I simply thinking about what's best for me? Well, I'll have more time without this child around. Or, boy, I really, I love this child. I don't want to lose it. To make a long story short, I don't know what to pray. It's a complex world, right? Children want to be safe and secure and well-fed. We can all agree on that. But you also find out very quickly in this process that children long to be with their birth parents. And sometimes that doesn't even... Appear in their hearts until later. It's a complex world, and I'm complex. I'm very selfish. I can tell myself I'm thinking of the best interests of the other person when really I could be thinking of my best interests the whole time. And so I don't know what to pray for. But the Holy Spirit does. And that's Paul's point. Despite what we pray, the Holy Spirit knows the complexity of the whole situation. He knows the world. He knows the complexity of my sinful heart. And He knows exactly how to pray for us. And He does. That's the assurance that we have. However, I don't think that we have fully grasped yet what Paul is getting at here because it isn't just that in these specific special circumstances that we don't know what to pray. It's actually in all of our prayers, Paul is saying. In all of our prayers, because we are in a state of weakness, and therefore, we fail to clearly discern God's will in most, if not all, circumstances. We are broken. We're unable to do it. Let's again think, think of an example, okay? If we would have read one verse further in Romans this morning, we would have heard that great text, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, Okay? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, we have to be careful with that text, don't we? Because Paul adds a qualifier to that just a little later. And he says that God makes all things, that's all of our good circumstances and all of our bad circumstances alike, he makes all of those things and uses all of those things to form us into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, God's ultimate goal, what He intends to do for us is to make us more like Jesus, okay? And so Paul doesn't say that God's not going to allow any bad circumstances to come into our lives. That's not his message. We all know, at least we all should know, that Christians experience good things and they experience bad things just like everyone else. But what Paul says is that God is in control of it all and God will orchestrate all of this stuff in such a way that ultimately it will lead to our salvation and to our sanctification. God will make us more like Jesus Christ is what Paul is telling us, and He will give us just what we need to get there. John Newton, the great hymn writer, described it this way. He said, Everything is needful that He sends. Nothing can be needful that He withholds. In other words, if you don't have it, It's not necessary. If you do have it, it is. Another theologian put it this way, if we think we require some good thing that God has withheld from us, in reality we don't absolutely need it. It also means that if we feel our life has been ruined by some bad thing, in reality, It's playing some very important role in our lives. It's teaching us. It's molding us. It's enriching us. It's humbling us. And so on. If it's there, it's there for a reason. Romans 8.28 teaches us to look at life's troubles as a part of God's loving purpose for us. Now, friends, God uses things, this text is telling us. God uses things that we would never pray for, that we would never ask for. God uses those kinds of things to save us, to make us holy. In our weakened state, we might pray that God would make us more like Jesus Christ. But we do not know the kinds of things that it's going to take for that to happen. And so we don't know what to pray for. I don't know that I might need to be chastised by God. And that is the only way that I will ever humble myself before Him. I don't know that. I wouldn't pray for it on my own. but the Holy Spirit knows it. He knows exactly what we need. And he prays for us. You see, friends, Paul is saying that in our weakened condition, our prayers are never going to hit the mark. Not perfectly. And that's why his solution is not for us to pray more It's not for us to search more diligently for God's will or even to ask for God's handwriting on the wall so I know what choice to make here. The solution, he says, rather, is that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to pray with us and to pray for us. We need divine help here. Now, this might raise some objections such as, well, then, you know, why should I even pray at all? Or why even bother to try to learn God's will? Why bother making definite requests if I'm always going to be wrong? Let me try to answer those in order. Okay, first, why pray at all? I mean, if the Holy Spirit prays for us, why do we even really need to pray? And one answer, I guess, is because God wants us to pray Because Jesus taught us to pray. But further, remember what we said about that little word. The Holy Spirit helps us. He helps us in our weakness. What that means is He joins with us in bearing the burdens, even the burdens of prayer. He sits down beside us. It's when we actually pray that the Spirit kneels down and helps us, that the Spirit puts His arms around us and helps us with the burden of prayer. Don't quit praying. Don't deprive yourself of that experience of the Holy Spirit coming alongside of you to teach you, to help you pray. Why bother even to learn or to try to learn God's will? Well, if the Spirit takes my self-centered, short-sighted prayers and transforms them into God-centered, God-glorifying prayers, why even spend the time trying to learn God's will on my own? It seems superfluous. But friends, this is one role of the Holy Spirit. We can't forget that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit is to help us actually understand the will of God and to submit to that will. He convicts us of the truth. He convicts us of our sin. Our entire lives, then, should be spent asking the Holy Spirit to give us a deeper, more intimate understanding of God's will, the kind of understanding of God's will that Jesus had. We should want that. Jesus himself taught us to pray that God's will in heaven might become our will on earth. And there is nothing that gives God deeper joy than when his people pray according to his will. When they recite back to him his very own words, what father doesn't enjoy that? When you recite back the very words he told you, Right? He told me this is how I was supposed to stand when hitting a ball, and that's exactly how I'm standing, Father. At the same time, we always pray humbly, don't we? We have to acknowledge that in this world, in this broken world, we're never going to fully get it. We're not going to get it all right. And so we temper our prayers with those words if it be your will. If it be in accordance with your will. And finally, why bother making definite requests to God? I mean, if we're likely to get it wrong, why even try? And again, we try because the Holy Spirit is right there with us. And just because His prayers, just because His groans are are God-directed, directed to God, it doesn't mean that He won't lovingly affirm us when we follow His lead and we get it right. It doesn't mean He doesn't jump up and down and cheer when we nail it. But what we have to learn, friends, is to hold on to those requests loosely hold on to them loosely i can't presume that in any circumstance that my will must be god's will his timing might be different his ultimate goal might be different what i can be sure of is this everything is needful that he sends And nothing can be needful that he withholds. Let's pray to God now. Lord God, as you, or as we teach our children to pray, we pray that you would teach us to pray. You would come along, come alongside of us. You would hold us. That you would whisper your word in our ears. That you would give us the words to pray. You would redirect our thoughts. You would teach us more about this complex world than we could ever understand on our own. And you would teach us about our own sinful hearts that are often impatient and often simply miss the mark. So come alongside of us and teach us. Teach us to pray gently, patiently. Pray for us. Intercede for us bring us into closer intimacy with our Father in heaven. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus, amen.